0: OK, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to shift away from discussing the formation of contracts, the conditions that need to be satisfied in order to form a legally binding contract, to discussing the terms of a contract. So once a contract is actually formed, what terms are the parties actually bound by or bound to? And what if happens if they breach those terms? You'll probably have heard of the concept or idea of a breach of contract, which is possibly the most important practical concept in contract law. You know, Parties who come to you as a lawyer with contractual issues are often concerned with issues around the breach of contract and whether this entitles them to sue the other party to the contract for damages or for some appropriate legal remedy. But they can't identify a breach unless they know what the terms of the contract are and what they're actually bound to or by. So that's going to be our focus from here on out, really, to the end of this first semester. Now, I want to start this topic by giving you a general lay of the land when it comes to terms and the different concepts or ideas that we're going to be discussing over the next few weeks. And then I want to plunge into the first main kind of substantive topic relating to terms which is to do with express terms. Now depending on where you are in this course, some of this material may have been covered in lectures already, this kind of lay of the land material that I'm going to discuss at the outset, but it's always worth repeating this material just to firmly bed down some of the important concepts that we're going to be covering. So prior to the formation of a contract The parties often say and do many things. They exchange many letters, many emails, many text messages. They may have lengthy conversations with one another. When we were discussing the topic of formation, what we were concerned with was identifying which of those communications that passes back and forth between the parties counts as an offer and which one counts as an acceptance and so forth. But of course, that's only part of what we're interested in. We're also interested what among the things they said and communicated to one another gets included or incorporated into the contract as a term of contract. And this is, I guess, the big problem or one of the big problems that we'll be discussing over the next few weeks, which is the so-called incorporation problem. How do we go from communications between parties prior to a contract to the terms of a contract? There's really two ways in which we go about doing that we look to the actual communications that were made by the parties, and we decide that some of those count as terms of a contract, that it's clear from their behavior or their intentions or their expressions that this was meant to be a term of the contract. And when we look to what they actually said and did, what we're typically doing is we're looking for so-called express terms of contract. Now, it often happens that parties don't say or do everything that they ought to say or do in order to form a successful contract, so in that case, courts also do another thing that is that they start to imply terms into a contract based on what the parties ought to have said and done, if they wanted to form a binding contract. And also, as happens so much now in modern life, many areas of commercial practice and many discrete areas of contract law, such as you know, employment contracts or contracts for the sale or rent of property are regulated and governed by statute, and statute often requires certain terms to be in a contract in order for it to be legally valid. And although sometimes the parties to a contract are aware of that, sometimes they aren't. And so in those cases, the courts have to imply terms into the contract in order for it to be legally successful. And those two practices by courts, implying terms into a contract based on what they think the parties ought to have said and done, and also, based on what is legally necessitated or required, is usually grouped under the label of implied terms of contract. And so that really defines kind of the two halves of the incorporation problem. Express terms, how do we go from what they actually said and did to a term of a contract? And implied terms, how do we go from what they ought to have said and done to a term of the contract? And then there's another aspect to contractual terms. Which I'll call the interpretation problem is, you know, once we've decided that something does count as a term of contract, well, what does it actually mean? How do we figure out what the parties were supposed to do in practice? And that means we have to interpret and apply the terms to the actual conduct of the parties. So those two problems are going to be with us for the remainder of the semester the incorporation problem and the interpretation problem. And we're going to start today in this lecture by looking at the incorporation problem. And we're going to start with the first half of the incorporation problem, which is, of course, to do with express terms of contract. So when we look at the topic of express terms, what we have to do is look at the kinds of communications that can be made between parties prior to the formation of a contract. And in addition to the distinctions between offer and acceptance, which we've discussed earlier, there are three main categories of communication that can... Pass back and forth between the parties prior to the formation of a contract. There are mere puffs, mere statements of opinion, or mere sales talk. They're all the same thing. There are representations and there are terms. So, mere sales talk is just kind of idle, flourishing statements designed to kind of help or assist in the sale of an item or a sale of a service. This is the kind of typical advertising hyperbole that we encounter so often in our everyday lives. My go-to example of this historically, although I think they have actually changed their advertising logo, used to be Carlsberg, who had this slogan that they said there was probably the best beer in the world. Well, that statement, probably the best, even though it's hedged with a little bit of uncertainty. It's clearly just sales talk. It's just a statement of opinion. It doesn't really have any legal effect or consequence. That's to be contrasted, then, with a representation, which is a statement which is made to induce a party to enter into a contract, but which, for whatever reason, doesn't count as an actual term of the contract. And then there are terms of the contract, which actually form part of the final binding agreement. And historically, it was very important to distinguish between these two things, although the rationale for the distinction has become less important over time because they gave rise to very different kinds of legal action and different kinds of remedy. So if a party made a representation that induced you to enter into a contract and it was somehow false and this fault, falseness was attributable to the, par- the other party's negligence or malice in a sense, then you would be entitled to bring an action for misrepresentation which would entitle you to certain kinds of remedy, typically rescission of contract or maybe damages, but usually only so-called rectification damages. So what that means is that you're entitled to be restored to the position that you were in prior to the contract, and you're going to discuss representations and the whole idea of misrepresentation in much more detail in semester two. Whereas a term of a contract had a different legal consequence insofar as if somebody breached a term of the contract, if what they their conduct or their performance of the contract failed to live up to the term, that entitled you to bring an action for breach of contract, not, misre- not misrepresentation, and that'll you to different kinds of remedies, damages for the loss of expected value through the contract being one of the more important entitlements that you would get if there was a breach of a term. Now it's a little bit more complicated than that because there are different kinds of term within a contract, and we'll come back to that at a later point in time. Now, the distinction between a representation and a term is a tricky and slippery one, and you'll only fully appreciate this once you've actually covered the topic of misrepresentation in semester two. But I will do my best right now and introduce you to the idea of a term and how courts go about deciding what counts as a term of contract. But I really do encourage you later on to look over this topic again, look over the notes in relation to this topic, when you've covered misrepresentation, to see if you understand the distinction between a representation and a term. So let me start by talking about the general rule that applies when it comes to express terms, you know, about incorporating things that the parties said and did into the contract. And the basic rule here can be stated roughly as follows. Which is that in order to work out whether something that is said or written prior to the formation of a contract is a term of contract, courts look to the objective intention of the parties, which can be inferred from the totality of the evidence that emerges in the case. And it's pretty vague, and we'll have to kind of flesh this out in more detail. And courts have done this over the years by adopting a bunch of sub rules, in essence to determine what gets incorporated into a contract. But even with this general statement of the rule, there should be a lot within it that is familiar to you. We've emphasized over and over again that in contract law, we don't really look at the subjective intention of the parties. We look to the objective intention, which is something that we infer from the total evidence that emerges from the particular set of facts, what was said and done, based on witness statements based on the evidence presented to the court. But how can we make this idea of basing what counts as a term on the objective intention of the parties inferred from the totality of an evidence, how can we make that a little bit more practicable, a more, little bit more useful? Well, courts have tried to do this over the years. I don't know if they've been entirely successful in doing so, but to illustrate how they go about doing it, I'm going to discuss a sequence of cases From the middle part of the 20th century, primarily English cases, that involve judges attempting to bring some clarity to what counts as a term of contract based on the communications, based on the totality of evidence that it passes back and forth between the parties prior to the formation of a contract. Now this sequence of cases is primarily the work of Lord Denning, and you have to take that with a grain of salt to some extent, given his somewhat checkered, History when it comes to the value of his precedence. But unlike some of the other topics that we've covered, I think this sequence of judgments is probably maybe less controversial than the other decisions that we've examined of his. And the first case in the sequence that we're going to look at is a case called Oscar Chess Limited versus Williams. So the facts of this case are that the defendant, Williams, purchased a new car from the plaintiff on the basis of a part exchange for his old car. Now, it just so happened that the salesman at the garage was a neighbour of the defendant, of Williams, and he had been given a lift in the defendant's car on several occasions, the car that he was exchanging to buy the new car. Now, the salesman thought that the defendant's car was a 1948 Morris Minor, and the defendant presented evidence to him that suggested that this was indeed the case. It was a registration book for the car. The salesman then looked up a book which gave guide prices for second-hand cars, and on the basis that it was a 1948 Morris minor, he offered the defendant £290 against the purchase price of a new car. The defendant then purchased a new car, and eight months later the plaintiff discovered that the car that they had taken in exchange was not in fact a 1948 Morris minor, but rather a 1939 Morris minor and this car would have been worth only £175. Now, it was very clear from the facts of this case that the defendant was not acting with any kind of malice. He hadn't lied about the age of the car. He was working off information that was in the registration book for the car that he had. So this wasn't a case of fraudulent misrepresentation or anything like that. Nevertheless, the garage brought a case against him, arguing that the age of the car that he had exchanged with them that it was a 1948, Morris Minor, was a crucial term of the contract, and the breach of this term of contract entitled them to recover damages. And the Court of Appeal, in their decision, ultimately disagreed, holding that the statement about the age of the car was a mere innocent misrepresentation and not a term of the contract. Now, in his judgment, Lord Denning argued that the crucial question for the court to resolve was whether the age of the car was intended to be a term of the contract. Specifically, whether it was intended to be a warranty of contract. That's the language that he uses. And this judgment is actually quite confusing if you read it, because Denning uses the term warranty in a non-standard sense, or at least not in the sense that we'll use it in this course, which is as a specific type of term of contract. I don't want to get too bogged down in this right now, but if you want to understand the way in which he uses it, uh, you can look at the notes that accompany this lecture and it's explained. But the only thing you need to bear in mind is that whenever he says warranty or refers to warranty, what he just means is a general is that it is a general term of contract and that, that it is a specific subtype of contract. So I'm just going to stick with saying that this case is about whether the age of the car was intended to be a term of contract rather than drag myself into that terminological dispute. So how could you decide whether the age of the car was intended to be a term of the contract? Here's what Denning says. He says, It is sometimes supposed that the tribunal must look into the minds of the parties to see what they themselves intended, but that is a mistake. Lord Moulton made it quite clear in an old case called Hilbert, Simmons & Co. v. Buckleton that the intention of the parties can only be deduced from the totality of the evidence. So the question of whether a warranty was intended depends on the conduct of the parties on their words and behavior rather than on their thoughts. And here's the crucial bit of the judgment. He says, If an intelligent bystander would reasonably infer that a term was intended, that will suffice. So we can deduce or infer from this aspect of Lord Denning's judgment something that I'm going to call the intelligent bystander test for whether something counts as a term of contract. And according to the intelligent bystander test, X, whatever X happens to be, is a term of contract if an intelligent bystander would have inferred that it was a term of contract based on everything that the parties said and did. Now, having set this test out, Denning turned to the facts of the particular case of Oscar Chess Williams, and he says the following. Much depends on the precise words that were used. If the seller says, I believe that the car is a 1948 Morris, here is the registration book to prove it, there is clearly no term. It is a statement of belief and not a contractual promise. If, however, the seller says, I guarantee that it is a 1948 Morris, this is borne out by the registration book, but you need not rely solely on that, I give you my own guarantee that it is. There is clearly a term. The seller is making himself contractually responsible, even though the registration is wrong." So those are two hypothetical scenarios that don't actually apply to the facts of this particular case, but Denning is kind of illustrating or triangulating his way to a conclusion about this case by looking at those extreme scenarios. So he goes on to say, I ask myself, what is the proper inference from the known facts? It must have been obvious to both that the seller himself had no personal knowledge of the year in which the car was made. He only became the owner of the car after a great number of changes. He must have been relying on the registration book. It is unlikely that such a person would warrant or guarantee the year of manufacture based on such information. The most that he would do would be to state his belief and then produce the registration book in verification of it. In these circumstances... The intelligent bystander would, I suggest, say that the seller did not intend to bind himself so as to warrant that the car was a 1948 model. So look, I've set that out in quite some detail, and I've had a lengthy extract from the judgment just because I think it is an important illustration of the judicial style of reasoning. You see what Lord Denning does there. He introduces a test, this intelligent bystander test, and he applies that to the facts of the case in front of him, and he reaches a conclusion that the party, the seller, Williams, could not possibly have intended to guarantee that the car was of a certain age. So reading between the lines within this intelligent bystander test and the way in which it is applied in this set of facts, it seems to be the case that whether something counts as a term of contract depends a lot on the knowledge of the parties and also the kind of responsibility that they take for what they say. So you see what Denning is saying. He's saying that if the defendant had taken responsibility for the age of the car, if he was stating explicitly or representing explicitly that he guaranteed that it was of a certain age, then it would count as a term. But if he wasn't doing that, if he wasn't holding himself out as having the actual knowledge of the age of the car, then it doesn't count as a term. Okay, let's move on to the second case then in the sequence. This is another motor car case. This is Dick Bentley Productions Limited versus Harold Smith Motors. A 1965 case. So here you have Dick Bentley, who is talking to the defendant, Harold Smith. He tells Mr. Smith that he is in the market for, or on the lookout for, a well-vetted Bentley automobile or car. So Smith, who's in the business of finding and selling cars, goes off, finds a Bentley car, buys it himself for £1,500. And then Dick Bentley came to see the car. Smith tells dick bentley that the car in question was owned by a german baron and that it had been fitted with a new engine and a new gearbox and he also stated to mr bentley that the car had only done twenty thousand miles on the road since its engine was replaced and that the dashboard reading would confirm this so on the basis of all this these statements and also the inspection of the car mr bentley buys the car but he then ran into trouble the car gave him lots of difficulties in practice, and so he brought a case for a breach of contract, for a breach of a term of contract. Now, this specifically related to the number of miles on the car, because it turned out that that particular statement was false. Now, Harold Smith's defense in the case was that he had only made the statement about the mileage to the best of his knowledge. So, I mean, initially there was a trial and the trial judge found that the statement with respect to mileage did count as a term of contract and there could be a suit for breach of contract. The case was appealed and then Lord Denning got his hands on it and he issued a judgment, following up on and building on his judgment in the Oscar Chess Limited case. So I'm going to quote again from the judgment. He says, I endeavored to explain in Oscar Chess Limited that the question of whether a term was intended depends on the conduct of the parties, on their words and behaviour, rather than on their thoughts. If an intelligent bystander would reasonably infer that a term was intended, that will suffice. If a representation is made in the course of dealings for a contract for the very purpose of inducing the other party to act on it, and it actually induces him to act upon it by entering into the contract, That is, prima facie ground for inferring that the statement was intended as a term of contract. But the maker of such a representation can rebut this inference if he can show that it was really an innocent misrepresentation, in that he was in fact innocent of fault in making it, and that it would not be reasonable in the circumstances for him to be bound by it. So reading between the lines here, Lord Denning seems to be adding a little bit to the intelligent bystander test that he set down in Oscar Chess Limited. So in Oscar Chess Limited, it was very much about the responsibility that the parties were taking for the knowledge that was represented or presented in the communications. Here he's saying it's actually about inducement. Were the statements made with the intention of inducing the other party to enter into the contract? And also, was there some kind of fault or blame? could describe that as responsibility as well for the making of that statement. So applying that to the facts in front of him, he says, here we have a car dealer, Smith, who was in a position to know or at least to find out the history of the car. So he could have found out whether the mileage statement was accurate. He did not do so. Indeed, it was done later. When the history of this car was examined, his statement turned out to be quite wrong. So he ought to have known better. Applying the intelligent bystander test to that, you'd say, well, actually, no, this was intended to be a term of the contract, this statement with respect to mileage, because it induced Mr. Bentley to enter into the contract, and also, clearly, the seller was at fault or was responsible for the statement that he made. Now, some people don't like these two judgments because they very much blur the boundaries between rules about misrepresentation and rules about terms of contract because they're focusing on fault with respect to a statement, which technically or historically shouldn't have anything to do with whether something counts as a breach of contract. But I think there's an easy way around that problem, because you could say, well, you can bring an action for a breach of contract even if the other party isn't at fault for the breach. But that's a separate question from whether something should count as a term of contract in the first instance. And what Denning is doing is he's looking at fault as a reason for thinking that something is incorporated into a contract as a term. And that's something that Denning also follows up in in the third case in the sequence that I'm going to mention, which is the case of Esso Petroleum Company versus Marden. And you'll probably cover this case again in semester two because it's an important case in the history of misrepresentation. But it, what's interesting about the case is that the court made a decision based on both rules on misrepresentation and also rules on breach of contract. So the facts of the case are that Marden, the defendant, entered into a tenancy agreement with Esso with respect to a filling station, a petrol station. So he's going to supply Esso Petroleum at his petrol station, kind of franchisee-type agreement. The agent from Esso Petroleum was a man who had 40 years' experience in the filling station trade. And so when he was asked for advice about the, sit- the location of Marden's filling station, He calculated that the annual throughput of the station was likely to be about 200,000 galleries per year by the third year of operation. Now, in practice, it turned out that Marden's filling station had considerably less throughput than that. And the reason for this was that the agent from Esso overlooked certain planning restrictions with respect to advertising the location of the filling station. So, I mean, just to make it simple, it wasn't easy or straightforward for Marden to advertise the location of the station to people driving along one of the main roads. Now, the Court of Appeal in this case decided that Esso were actually liable for damages for breach of contract, or sorry, they were liable for damages either due to a breach of contract, that the throughput of the station was a term of contract, or because the statement in question was a misrepresentation. Now, in reaching this conclusion, Lord Denning says the following. He says that the statement with respect to the 200,000 gallons was a forecast made by a party, Esso, who had special knowledge and skill. It was the yardstick by which they measured the worth of a filling station. They knew the facts. They knew the traffic in the town. They knew the throughput of comparable stations. They had much experience and expertise at their disposal. They were in a much better position than Mr. Marden to make a forecast, and it seems to me that if such a person makes a forecast intending that the other should act upon it, and he does act upon it, it can well be interpreted as a term that the forecast is sound and reliable in the sense that they made it with reasonable care and skill. So here we have Lord Denny again modifying his intelligent bystander test or just adding some complexity to it, by modifying the fault element of the test that I mentioned previously. So he seems to say that the inducement is a key element of whether something counts as a term of contract, but also then the expected competency of the party making the statement. And if you go back to the case of Oscar Chests Limited versus Williams, that might be the best explanation of the judgment there, too, that really what's going on there is that Williams didn't have the expected competency to make a statement about the age of the car. So in applying this kind of intelligent bystander test, can we focus on the totality of the evidence? But there's some things that can help us to work out whether something will be incorporated as a term. One, whether the statement or communication was made with the intention of inducing the other party into the contract on the basis of that statement, and also whether the party making the statement had the competency to make it. So, I mean, are there any other factors that courts should consider in deciding whether an express statement or communication counts as a term of contract? Well, if we look beyond this Denning sequence of cases, there are some other cases that suggest or hint at factors that should be borne in mind and then that might influence or calls an intelligent bystander to infer that something counts as a term of contract. Uh, two things that I'll just mention here is that the relative importance of the term to the contracting parties might be a factor, and also then how significant a lapse of time there was between the statement and the eventual formation of the contract. So let me just discuss some cases involving the relative importance of a term first, or a statement, rather, first. So there's an old English case called Bannerman v. White, which seems to illustrate the importance criteria, or criterion, I should say. So the facts of the case are that White, the defendant, was trying to buy some hops from Bannerman, and during the negotiations he explicitly stated to the seller that if these hops have been treated with sulfur, I am not even interested in knowing the price of them. The seller told White then that they had not been treated with sulfur, and this turned out to be incorrect. They had been treated with sulfur, and the court held in this Decision that the absence of sulfur treatment was a term of contract because it was clearly very important to the defendant. Similarly, there's the infamous case of Couchman v. Hill, infamous because I guess the facts are slightly unusual, or depending on your background, might be unusual to you. If you come from an agricultural background, maybe not that unusual. So the case involved Couchman, who was purchasing two cows, heifers, at an auction. And at the time that he made the purchase, he asked the auctioneer whether these heifers had been served or not. Basically, whether they had been impregnated by a bull previously. And the auctioneer told him that it had not been, or they, sorry, the, that the cows had not been. And the vendor of the cows also said that they had not been. And it also stated that they had not been in a catalog associated with the auction. Well then, imagine Couchman's surprise when he purchased the one of the heifers and found out that she was with calf, and she also died as a result of carrying the calf while too young. So he sued for a breach of a term of contract on the grounds that the unserved nature of the heifers was a term of contract. And in this case, the Court of Appeal decided, the English Court of Appeal decided that the oral statement made by the auctioneer and the vendor to the effect that the calf was unserved, that the heifer was unserved amounted to a term of contract. And then a crucial factor in reaching this conclusion was that the importance of well sorry was the importance of the statement to the plaintiff. You know, he had sought out this information. It was clearly very crucial to him that the heifer was not impregnated. And so it should be deemed a term of the contract. Okay, so those are two cases that emphasize this idea that the relative importance of the term to one of the parties, as inferred from the evidence, will be relevant to determining whether it is a term of the contract. What about lapse of time? Well, there's a case, again, an English case, called Rutledge v. McKay, or Mackay, which seems to illustrate this idea. The facts of the case, the 1954 case, by the way, are that a motorcycle was being put up for sale. The vendor had a registration book which stated that the motorcycle was registered in either 1941 or 1952 or 1942. He stated this age to one potential customer. The purchaser, the customer, rather went away for a week so that he could think about whether he wanted to purchase the motorcycle. He then came back and he purchased the motorcycle. But the second time round, when he made the purchase, the age of the vehicle was never mentioned. Now, it turned out subsequently that the motorcycle was much older than the vendor had originally stated. But the Court of Appeal held in this case that the lapse of one week between the time of purchase and the time of the original statement or misstatement of age, also given the fact that it wasn't mentioned again at the second transaction or the second time around, meant that it was not a term of contract. So this suggests again that lapse of time might be related to or used as evidence to infer whether something is a term of contract or not. Now, let me just be clear in wrapping up here that there isn't a really hard and fast rule here, as should be clear. The basic rule, again, is that whether something counts as a term of contract depends on the objective intention of the parties and that you work that out from the totality of the evidence. But over the years, courts have focused on certain factors or attributes or criteria that seem to be indicative of or might help them in reach a conclusion to the effect that something counts as a term. So we had this sequence of Denning cases, which suggest that you apply this kind of intelligent bystander test. What would an intelligent bystander have inferred when, in looking in on the transaction between the parties? And he thinks that an intelligent bystander would focus on whether a communication was made with the intention of inducing a party to enter into a contract, and whether the person making that statement had the expected competency to make that statement. And then we've got other courts focusing on the apparent importance or the relative importance of a term to the parties and also then potentially the lapse of time. Again, none of these things is absolutely dispositive of whether something will count as a term of contract. They're all things that can be used as evidence to infer whether something is a term of contract. And you have to really look at them in the round, in the totality, and not get too fixated on any one thing. Okay, that's probably a good place to end things for today. We'll take up the thread in the next lecture by looking at some rules that relate to written contracts and whether the terms that are set down in written contracts can ever be amended or updated by things that parties have said.